Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Domenica Ruda. She is the author of With or Without You, which has just been published by Spiegel and Grau. And welcome, Domenica. Thanks, Ron, for having me. So we grew up not too far apart from each other in the North Shore, mm-hmm. although Danvers is a much um, different part of town than a lot of the rest of the North Shore. And it's or it's a it's suspiciously the same. There's a lot of the North Shore that is just sort of quaint, idyllic looking fishermen villages that have grown up slightly. Damaris is like a lot of those. It's also has a notorious history with, you know, witch trials and burning witches and uh, or hanging witches. It has a really huge heroin and Oxycontin problem, which I also think doesn't distinguish it from a lot of New England. That's actually a good point that you raised, and it comes up in the memoir too, that the Salem witch trials actually took place in the future Danvers. Exactly. The first initial trials were the first accusations uh, for the vast majority of the witches who were eventually hanged in the city of Salem were from my hometown, Danvers, which was then Salem Village. So that's our big claim to fame. I've always been really proud of that. And you grew up a couple blocks from one of the last standing original houses from the, from that period. Right, yeah, the Rebecca Nurse house. She was the oldest. She was in her 60s. And, you know, it was the very typical witch trial story. I think someone wanted her land, and she was a midwife, and she was just a good woman who someone felt like they needed to attack. But, of course, the memoir isn't about growing up in the village of the witches. Well, it's not quite, <laughs> yeah. no. It's probably, a, it's more closer to the other thing that you mentioned, which is the heroin and Oxycontin problem that Danvers has, which you got a frontline exposure to growing up. Yeah, I did. Um, my mother, who, by the way, you know, before the early 90s, was already a, a rabid drug addict. She was one of the first people in our community to get a legal prescription from a legal doctor for OxyContin, which is one of the most powerful prescription painkillers you can get. It's essentially heroin in a pill. You know, it was just, it was sort of a careless, horrible oversight of the American medical system that someone like her would get a drug that powerful. But it, it took over my town. It took over a lot of surrounding towns. I've read in the New York Times, it, it's, you know, it's spread like a plague across the country. And my mom was really generous and loving and toxic and crazy. And so she would share her schedule to narcotics with me, her daughter, when I was a little kid. This was when she was already dealing coke out of the the front room. Yeah, but the thing about her dealing coke is it was not a vocation. It was just something she did every once in a while to make a bit of money. I don't know if, like, I know that in my life, every once in a while when I was broke, I'd pick up a catering shift or a waitressing gig just to make an extra thousand dollars to get through some kind of rough patch or to get through some kind of vacation or something. Uh, so for her, the dealing drugs was not her primary calling. You know, it was, making money was definitely her talent. Dealing drugs was one way to do that and one kind of easy and for her interesting way to do that. But she wasn't a professional drug dealer. She wasn't like somebody you'd see on the wire. She was more like a, there's a whole swath of drug addicts that sort of deal to maintain and they're not actual dealers. And that's where my mother fits in the spectrum. You mentioned the talent for making money, and that did remind me there's a scene early on where, for example, you had wanted a computer, and she took a part-time job just long enough to get the money to get you that computer, and then you know, called in sick and never went back. Mm-hmm. There were lots of those kinds of jobs mm-hmm. in, in our life together, yeah. And on the one hand, it's, it's a sign of the kind of affection and, and love that she had for you, but... You know, one thing that comes through in this story is that that affection was 
like, you know, it's a it's a two sided coin, and the other side of that coin is for every attempt she made to like build you up and improve your life, she would actively sabotage you as well. Absolutely, I, I think. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying. I'm still trying to make sense of all this, and it'll take me a lifetime to to make sense of all this. And what will probably happen is the mystery will just deepen, and I won't ever make sense of it. But that's okay too. But I think a lot of mothers experience this, especially mothers of daughters, experience this ambivalence about wanting their daughters to have so much more than they ever did and then resenting them for having so much more than they ever did. Wanting their daughters to go to these faraway places and then being terrified and wanting to hold them back from these faraway places. In my mother's case, it was really, really extreme, sometimes comical, sometimes frightening, in which, you know, she would buy me symphony tickets when I was a little kid and I wasn't musical, I was just curious. Uh, You know, and she would find a way to make that happen that I could go to the Boston Symphony Orchestra on a regular basis by myself because she thought, well, maybe you'll like classical music. Maybe that'll be something you do. She would also tell me to get pregnant when I was in high school because she was so scared of losing me, losing control of me or me gaining my independence from her. And I think, you know, that that's a really... Love is complicated, and it's and her love was complicated, but I think that's true of most love, parental love, motherly love. You know, it's never one thing. It's never pure sacrifice or pure hatred. And it's really complex because, you know, she would line up prep school interviews for you, mm-hmm. and then she, you know, to go on these interviews, she would dress you up like the epitome of prep school fetish girl. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, And that was also, that was her doing her, I mean, she was really trying to help me in that mm-hmm. way. She didn't know what these schools wanted. She had an idea that I could possibly fit into the mold of what they wanted because I got good grades, but we didn't know. I mean, this is the world of wasps was as far away land for us. You know, China is as far away, even, you know, and culturally at least. And so we didn't really know what to do. So, you know, my mother sort of went back on an age old dictum that sexuality sells. And she's like, well, if my daughter looks hot, maybe that will convince them. You know, it was humiliating and I wasn't hot. I was awkward. And, but I actually see that now, you know, years and years of hindsight as a, as an act of really sort of misguided love on her part to dress me up in these tight sweater sets before I went on these Andover and Exeter interviews. Part of that same impulse that, you know, she wants to get you pregnant at 15 or 16 because then at least you'll have stability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the aspects of the kind of sabotage that she did to your emotional well-being that I was really struck by in the passages that you write about. And you were abused as a child, and it was pretty much known what was happening. But because of the toxic environment that your mother circulated in and the kinds of standoff situations with everybody having something on everybody else, Mm -hmm. this decision seems to have been made, maybe not even consciously, that your abuse was essentially collateral damage in this environment. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. It's and it's it's hard for me. It's so much easier for me to not easy, not easy at all, but it's easier for me to write about deep trauma than it is to talk about it. Something happens in my voice when I talk about it and I get choked up and scared. You know, it, it's the culture we came from. My mother was abused sexually as a child. My grandmother was abused sexually as a child. It's just sort of what happens. It's it's a rite of passage. It's just and it, it's a trauma. We all sort of silently recognize that, but it wasn't. It was a trauma that we felt powerless to 
do anything about. You know, it's one of the many sins of omission that my family was trapped in. It's like, well, if we don't talk, if we don't, if we're not honest, if we keep medicating ourselves, we have to, we can pretend that everything is just the way it's supposed to be. When a great crime against a little kid's soul was being committed on a regular basis. You know, yeah, and, it, and, and I spent a lot of my life being furious about that, being so full of rage that somebody didn't come in like Superman and save me. And now I realize... You know, everybody else was sick too, and they were sick in different ways, and sick people can't help people. You have to be well and strong to help people. I didn't have anyone like that in my life growing up. For a long time growing up, knowing that you at least aspired to move on, one of the things that marks your personality in your early years and in your adolescence is that despite growing up in an environment of alcoholics and drug addicts, you really held off to the point where, like, you know, your mother is like, why isn't this girl doing drugs? Yeah, my mom made fun of me. She you know, she was like, you're totally square, Nikki. And she would say this to me when I was 12 and 13 years old because I didn't do drugs at 12 and 13. And in our world, it's like, you don't get started by 11. It's like, well, what's wrong with you? I didn't, yeah, I didn't start smoking pot until I was 15. And I didn't really start drinking the way I wanted to drink or the way I was meant to drink until I was 16, which in my community is a very late bloomer. Is I guess that's sort of a backwards mentality. <laughs> but once you started, I mean, the family addiction really kind of got its talents into you pretty hard. I, I think it's in my blood. You know, and I, I believe, and there's lots of controversy around this, but it is my opinion that addiction is a spiritual, physical, and mental disease that it, it afflicts you on three fronts, and it's in you from the time you're born. And it's something like I could blame my genetics, but that's only one third of it. I could blame my traumas growing up, but that's only one third of it. It's also, you know, I really feel like there was a spiritual hole in me and I was filling it. That if I had been given up in foster care and adopted by this dream family that I've imagined who, you know, sent me to Montessori schools and and nurtured me and told me every single thought I had was valid and wonderful, that I still would have found booze and I still would have drank like a goddamn fish because it's just in me to do that. And that's a blessing and a curse. You know, it's, 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 if it didn't, if, you know, it didn't kill me and it's actually brought me a lot of gifts because I've been able to recover. But, um, yeah. It's, and I, I come from a long line of high-functioning alcoholics and drug addicts. You yourself were high-functioning for at least a decade, I think, probably a little bit more. Probably more than a decade, yeah. A very high-functioning alcoholic. I never crashed a car because I always had the sense to convince some boyfriend or another to drive me. <laughs> and with the, with the, you know, the really selfish notion that, well, if he crashes the car because he's drunk, it's not my fault because I didn't drive. So I was that kind of alcoholic where I was really good at evading responsibility and evading really big, big ticket outcomes like jail and institutions, you know, just sort of quietly dying inside. While you were doing this, you were also in a creative writing program. Yes. At grad school. Yes. And it was the Mishner Center for Writers at the University of Texas in Austin, and it is a one of the most amazing MFA programs in the country. And there are two aspects to this that I want to get into. The first is that while you were in that program and writing fiction and workshopping it, you were taking elements of your family life and presenting them, you know, recontextualizing them in a fictional environment. And the reaction was that these things that were very closely based on, on your life were unbelievable. Yeah, there was, it was amazing. I remember one workshop participant who told me to my face in class, 
after reading one of my stories, poor people don't talk like this. And, you know, he had gone to a Ivy League school and had his parents had PhDs and master's degrees. And for some reason, he thought that he was an authority on this. But it was the presiding thought in my grad school experience that there was this Steinbeckian American poor that was full of humility and overalls and artfully dirty hands and just like all this nobility. And this was not the poverty I saw growing up. And again, like when I say poverty, I feel like I need to temper that because I grew up in America. You know, there's poverty in Bombay. There's lower, there's struggling lower class capitalism in America. That's what I grew up with. But yeah, the people I knew on welfare had cable television, you know, and we weren't the only ones who lived like that. There was always money for cigarettes and in junk food, you know, which is more expensive than a lot of other things. And then in terms of voice, like I would quote my mother directly in some in my fiction sometimes, and people didn't think that a real person would talk like that, as though there's a one singular universal voice of one class of people in America, and it's not true. I, I knew, I've known a lot of poets who never went to school. The other aspect that I'm, I'm interested in is... I want to explore, maybe, if you're up for it, the difference between writing high or writing drunk and writing sober, which is what you've been doing yeah. for the last few years. Uh, that's such a great question. I, I mean, a lot of people perpetuate the myth that it's like this, you go into this fugue state and it's this transcendent thing and it's uh, like Coleridge or, or Kerouac or Blake. I have found, having only been sober for four years and having had to pretty much relearn how to write in those four years that it's much, much harder, but much, much better in the long run to write sober. The difference, the main difference is sitting with the uncomfortable feeling of, uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have the right words immediately at my disposal. And that's frustrating. And, you know, and just sitting there with that pain rather than jumping up out of my chair and pouring another shot of scotch. I'm not going to say that I didn't write anything worthwhile when I was drunk or high. Occasionally I did, but then I would pass out. And I think of like, you know, maybe I'd get 250 words out, but I could have gotten a thousand words out if I had been sober and I had had the patience to sit with that uncomfortable feeling of, oh, it's not going well, it's not going well. Well, wait a minute, because that feeling might pass and something might come to you. I imagine that uncomfortable feeling intensifies when you make the decision to write directly about your life. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, it's sort of like when you're in a major traumatic accident, your brain will just pump out mad endorphins so you don't feel the pain right away. I think some sort of neurochemical version of that was going on when I was writing this memoir because there were times when I was writing and I felt miles and miles and miles away from the laptop that was literally on my lap. And I was writing, but I felt this psychic distance that made it safe for me just just find words, you know, to sort of make this a practical craft task. Find the next right word and then the next right word and then the next right word. Get to the senses, get to the punctuation, boil it down to these really simple terms and, and get that done. But then definitely, uh, and this is, I've noticed this to be true because I'm working on fiction primarily now. After writing for three hours on my memoir, I would get up from the desk or I'd get up from bed and I'd go and think, I'm going to make a sandwich, I'm going to do my laundry, I'm going to walk my dog. And I would just collapse onto my bed and fall asleep for three hours like I was in a coma. And when I write fiction for three hours, that doesn't happen. When I'm done, I'm like, oh, I have energy. Let's go for a run. It's very, it's not as emotionally draining. What prompted the impulse to to do the memoir? Everyone asks this question, and every time I think I give a different answer, and every time I feel like there's an element of it that's 
the truth that I've never seen before. And there's an element of just anxiety and I make it up on the spot. But I was urged to write a memoir by one of my best friends in the whole world, Brian McGreevy, who wrote the novel Hemlock Grove, which is coming out as a Netflix series. He was at the Mystery Center with me, and he was far and away my biggest supporter and my best teacher. And he had been encouraging me just after hearing my drunken stories late at night that I should write a memoir because he kept saying, these are great stories. You need to write them down. And I stubbornly refused because I had this sort of misogynist, self-hating idea of, you know, I don't want to be one of those women who writes one of those women's memoirs, having no idea what that even meant because I hadn't read any memoirs. And then at a certain point, almost as an act of defiance, because my fiction wasn't being received the way I thought it should be, and I was angry at my my peers in, in grad school, I, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to write something that will really break their goddamn hearts. And I started working on a memoir that I didn't really show to anybody but Brian McGreevy. He encouraged me to keep going. And then, I don't know, maybe six or nine months later, I got sober, and I couldn't write a word. I couldn't read. You know, I, I was just in such a painful place in early recovery. When I sort of came to and I sort of woke up again and got my feelings back and got my my brain back, writing this memoir was sort of the only thing I could do. I had this sort of, this laser intense focus. And I, so I think in many ways it just, it needed to come out and it did. That's something you write about after you go through the initial euphoria of sobriety and that wears off. You describe this pretty extended period of crashing from that euphoria and being in that extended grief that you just described. It's brutal. And I like, luckily, because I've stayed sober one day at a time for a couple of years now, I've gotten the privilege to see other people come in to recovery, fresh and raw and full of pain, go on their own pink cloud thinking, oh my God, sobriety is awesome. Why didn't I do this years ago? This is wonderful. And then watching them crash in this really painful way and then pick themselves up again to know that, you know, it's a process. This is a biological disease. This is a spiritual disease. This is an emotional disease, you know, and you can see all of those things happening when you have a little bit of perspective and you watch new people come in and struggle to get through those first, that first year, basically the first couple of months, especially, but the whole first year is a goddamn nightmare roller coaster ride. You had mentioned just now that one of the things that was holding you back from writing a memoir was this notion of not writing a women's memoir, whatever that is. I was also thinking that you made the decision to write this memoir, I think, late enough, enough time had passed that the James Fry thing was not any longer an issue in terms of writing a memoir of addiction and recovery, it seems like. I mean, it still sort of is. I think for better or for worse, and I think it's a little bit of both, he has opened a door for memoirists to really explore what it means to to have a memory and to retell a story and to, and to do that with craft. Yeah, I mean, part of the experience of recovery is trying to parse out, well, what of my life is valid, what is invalid, what is, what of my life is a, an emotional projection, what is real. And I have found, like, and so I actually owe a debt, a great debt to James Fry for starting that conversation, as painful as it probably was for him, and I can only imagine, he started a really interesting conversation that helped, that I at least was engaged in in my head while I was writing this, which is, you know, when I get to points where I don't remember clearly, how about I just dive headfirst into that uncertainty? How about I highlight 
the gaps in my memory. You know, I I point out the moments when craft is taking over, when I'm painting something a certain color in the writing of memoir, because I don't exactly remember what color it was, but this is the color it needs to be in this truth. I, I don't know how you wrote people wrote memoirs before that, before that door was opened, so I'm really grateful for that. Let's talk a little bit about the challenge of writing about your family, which, I mean, every memoirist goes through this challenge. Mm-hmm. But was it by the time that you made the decision to write this memoir that you would cut your mother off? Yeah, she'd been cut off from my life for a couple of years. Looking back, everything happened right on schedule, although it all felt manic and crazy and a mistake. But I cut contact with her. I continued drinking heavily, even more heavily, for several years after cutting contact with her, which led me to the ego-puncturing epiphany that... My drinking is my problem, not hers. My The messes I'm making in my life, I have made alone. She's not made them for me, which brought me to the greatest gift in my life, which is, well, that if it's my problem, that means it's my job to fix it, and I can do that. And and then I started to fix it, and, and writing this memoir happened concurrently with that process of getting sober for the most part. So, yeah, so the, I had some distance from her when I began writing this memoir, but there were so many other members of my family who were very much a part of my life. Right. You know, in the latter parts of the memoir, you are close with your father and your your half-sister, mm-hmm. close with other members of the family. And in some respects, there's still that sort of like distancing environment. I mean, I guess the point I'm, I'm circling around is that your mother was not unique in her emotional framework in terms of, of how the family dynamics sort of work. The whole family basically worked in the sort of like build you up, cut you down sort right, of way. Right, right, right. <laughs> she was really dramatic and had and had a particular flair for it. A flair that I, I mean, in every sense of the word, sometimes it could burn you. Sometimes it was just really cool to look at from a distance. I try to say it's like a New England thing or it's an Italian-American thing. And, you know, I tried to connect it to the opening scene of The Godfather Part Two when Vito Corleone's mother brings the young Vito, he's like four or five years old, to the dawn of the Sicilian Mafia and says, after the dawn has killed every every man in their family, and sort of points to her son and says, look at him, he's he's mentally disabled, he's a mute, he's, he's stupid, you know, I just want you to know that he's no threat to you, please, please, please never attack him because he's no threat to you. You know, and this way of denigrating our children so that they're not these bright shining stars that get attention that could be attacked. So like, you know, I try to be elegiac about it and wonder if that's part of it. You know, like maybe if I advertise my kid as homely simpleton, then nobody will hurt her. Or maybe, I don't know, it's just uh, old school parenting, old world parenting. I don't know. But you were able to restore your relationship with, as we pointed out, your father and some of your Yeah, we have an awesome relationship. It's He's going through a hard time in the aftermath of this book. It's really painful for him, but... I feel like we're we're closer than ever. Yeah, that's what um, that's what I was going to ask is what's it like for those family members who you are close with to see this it's, laid out on the page? It's it's incredibly complex and painful and and difficult. On one hand, they're really really proud of me, and thank God the book's doing kind of well. I feel like if the book was tanking, then they, there would be a, maybe more anger towards me. But you know, there was a lot of grief. There was a lot of stuff in this book that they didn't know that I had never talked about that they learned about from reading the same memoir that perfect strangers have been reading. I don't know if that was the best way to communicate all that with them or not, but it's the way it worked out. There's a lot of complicated emotions that we're still trying to sort through, but there's a, a lot of communication that never was there before. And we're finding words for things that we never had words for before. They're not always the right words, but it's still a step in the right direction. And 
That's an unexpected gift that I'm really grateful for. Although you've cut off contact with her for years, I mean, your mother is still out there on the periphery. Yeah. And you you describe in the memoir even, you know, Googling her occasionally and seeing Mm -hmm. what's going on. I mean, has word filtered back to you or have you deliberately sort of said, you know what, I don't want words to filter back to me, whether she sees this or not? Right. I sent her a copy because I did, I did, was able to get an address and I I sent her a physical copy of the book and an audio copy and I wrote a a short note inside expressing love and gratitude and, you know, can't talk to you right now, but one day maybe and let it go. And um, the only feedback I've gotten from that is via the New York Times which is so surreal to, that this is the commu- this is the first communication I've had with my mother in seven years, I think. And it was through a New York Times reporter. She had read the book. She, you know, I mailed her the book. She read it and she loved it. She thought I did a good job. And uh, that's all I know so far. But that's the that's the only review that matters. Anybody can say anything they want now. But my mother thought I did a quote super job. So, uh, you know, Michiko can say whatever she wants, and I won't even feel it because. The one person I wanted to love it, loved it. You mentioned that you were writing fiction primarily now. And how is fiction writing going for you? It's great. It's so fun. It's really great to not know what's going to happen next. And I forgot that because for about three or four years, I've been working exclusively on this memoir that I forgot what it means to write fiction. When from one scene to the next, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's so, it's scary, but it's really exciting. And characters that I think I know surprise me. And that's really exhilarating, and stuff comes out that I didn't even know I had. I've been enjoying that very much, and I like that it's made up, and I get to use my imagination and leave this world for a couple hours a day. Well, we will definitely be looking forward to to seeing what your imagination comes up with in a couple of years. In the meantime, I encourage people to go out and find a copy of With or Without You by Domenica Ruta. It's published by Spiegel and Grau. And you have been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll join me for another podcast soon. Thanks.